All right, good morning. Hey, I'm Cameron. I'm the lead pastor here at Christ Community Church. I'm Cameron Barham, not Cameron Harrington. It is always confusing to uh, hear the names bandied about. Um, but uh, if you would be turning to Hosea chapter 2 this morning uh, as we will continue through the series on Hosea. Uh, and this morning we're going to be looking at God's redemptive justice and covenant love. And as we said early on uh, in the introduction, one of the things I think that we struggle with either actively or passively is trusting God's discipline. Right? And trusting God's goodness when his judgment does fall. And so uh, I think this is a, a very important series, not only for us personally, but also that is the question that the world is also asking is, is your God good? And if he is good, explain some of these things, right? And so, um, so one of the things that we hope to accomplish through the whole of this series is that what you will see is that when God, in fact, does discipline his people, it is always for his redemptive purposes. It is because he loves us, not because he's cruel, not because he doesn't care about us, not because we are no longer his children permanently, but because he genuinely wants us restored to relationship with him, right? And so um, the key truth for this, uh, for this sermon this morning is that God's discipline serves his redemptive purpose to eternally restore his wayward people to his covenant love and his promised blessing. Now, you may be thinking, Cameron, are you just pulling that out of a hat or is there an actual Bible verse that says something to the effect of what you just said? Well, I'm glad you asked that question uh, because if you would just real quick, turn to Psalm 76 and we'll look at verses eight and nine. Uh, I've been studying the Psalms for my own personal devotional time, and, and this really, it was uh, interesting that, to hit on these verses in this Psalm as I was preparing for Hosea. Listen to what God's Word says. From the heavens you uttered judgment, and the earth feared and was still. When God arose to establish judgment to save all the humble of the earth. Now, what does that passage tell us is the purpose of God's judgment? To save his people. That the purpose of his judgment is redemptive, primarily. Now, you may say, but isn't there a final judgment? Yes, there is. In order for God to ultimately be just, there must be final judgment. There must be a time that comes when all of sin is purged from creation, when all of sin is purged from the new heavens and new earth so that we at long last can enjoy our relationship with him as we were originally designed and intended. Amen? So while we should never, never take joy in someone perishing or the thought that someone may be separated eternally from God or be in the presence of his wrath for eternity, we should never take joy in that, which is why we should take great pleasure in the fact that God is patient and kind and long-suffering and his love is in fact steadfast. As Second Peter tells us, he doesn't tarry because he's lazy or because he's forgotten us, or because he's, he's gotten occupied with something else. No, he tarries because he's patient and he's kind and he longs for the family to get bigger, of which we, the church, were created to help in that process. We were invited into that. And we'll see that this morning in Hosea chapter 2. So my first question for us is one that I think we need to kind of think about, uh, and certainly the implications of, um, how, how do you respond when you are corrected or disciplined by an authority over you? How, how, do you, how do you often respond when someone has any sort of authority over you, when they correct you or discipline you, 
And the second part of that question is, what actually contributes most to you receiving it well and viewing it as gracious opportunity? Now, oftentimes it's in the delivery, right? Or it's in the history that you have with that person. If you have seen and known and trusted them and know that they have your best interest at heart, it is easier to receive. But if we're honest, none of us likes being corrected. None of us likes hearing, hey, uh, meet me in my office in 15 minutes. We need to talk. Or you get that text message that says, hey, we need to get together. The inherent within that need, oftentimes we need to get together is often not because I just love you so much and I can't wait to spend time with you, right? That's often not what happens. But but we're, and and what's interesting to me is anytime I reach out to any of you about getting together, there's an immediate suspicion, right? There's this immediate, uh, what for, right? That's fair. That's fair. It could get, it could get hairy. But even better, I thought of the further question, how do you respond when someone who has no authority over you corrects you or disciplines you? How do you, how do you respond when someone who barely even knows you or is less than you, such as a child, parents? Parents, you ever had your kids correct you? And how much did you appreciate it? How much did you say, I really appreciate that? And so what is it that goes on in our heart that we are automatically opposed to any sort of correction at all? And what sort of presupposition is lending itself to us not receiving correction from anyone? It's this presupposition, I think, that we think we ought to be, per- we ought to be at least viewed as perfect. And oftentimes we have kind of this response, which I have to give Matt Chandler credit for saying, but it always stuck with me. <laughs> he said that somebody corrected him one time and his response was this, Oh, that's interesting that you could see the speck in my eye with that plank sticking out of your big fat head, (laughs) which is oftentimes our response, right? We want to immediately kind of tear that person down. We want to talk about all the reasons. Oh, really? It's interesting you have that opinion of me because there's some things I think you need to work on as well, right? Instead of being able to receive the reality that one, God is sovereign, right? And any authority that's over you, both good and bad, is there by his sovereign hand to shape and sanctify you. And any uh, not in authority that is around you that may speak to you also somehow, some way comes by his sovereign hand. Consider the story of Shemamiah who is throwing rocks at David all along the way because he is just yelling at him and, and accusing him of things. And one of David's mighty men says, let me cut that dead dog's head off. As any leader will tell you, the temptation would be. But David said, no, he's been appointed by the Lord. Don't touch him now. Judgment does come for Shemamiah, by the way, but not then. Because he was appointed by the Lord to throw stones at David to call him to something. And so one of the things I think that we have to trust is that God is in fact good and that the authorities that he places over us, even the bad ones, somehow, some way, serve his sanctifying and redemptive purpose. It's not always easy to understand. And so what we're going to see is that Hosea is actually going to call for those who are not in authority to challenge those who are in authority with what's going on. And in fact, one of the things that we need to recognize is that oftentimes when it is, the children are referred to, that is actually the children of Israel. And it's not the leaders. The leaders are often the ones that are associated with Gomer herself. Remember, every king in the North Kingdom followed who? 
Jeroboam the first, son of Nebat, and led the entire nation into sin. And so now Hosea is going to call for, actually God through Hosea is going to call for the children to rise up and say to the authority, repent. Repent because judgment is coming. And so what we'll see is that the kings and the priests and the prophets, as we go through Hosea, have failed the people. And if they won't listen, then God will work through the people to rise up. And so how many of us as church leaders uh, will hear things from the next generation? Things that we, we forgot, whether it's, uh, where, did, where did the call for racial reconciliation come from? The top or the children? It came from the children. Where did the, the, the cognitive dissonance about how we treat women, period, come from? The top? No, they went blind. The children had to cry out and say, something must change. How about missions or, or missionality or caring about our neighborhoods or caring about anything? Again and again and again, we as leaders, sometimes we lose the forest for the trees because we're managing nickels and noses and we're managing things that may not be holy. And so the children have to cry out. Are we willing to listen? Are we willing to be biblical? And the real grid, I don't care if a person's in authority or not, or God sends somebody sitting next to you getting a haircut that you don't even know. The real question is, is what they're saying biblical and does it bring honor and glory to the Lord? If it does, you should receive it. You should receive it as from his hand. So as we step into this text, I'll read the first 13 verses and this will teach us about God's redemptive justice. Hear the word of the Lord. Say to your brothers, you are my people. And to your sisters, you have received mercy. Plead with your mother, plead, for she is not my wife and I am not her husband, that she put away her harlotry from her face and her adultery from between her breasts, lest I strip her naked and make her as in the day that she was born and make her like a wilderness and make her like a parched land and kill her with thirst. Upon her children also I will have no mercy because they are children of harlotry. For their mother has played the harlot. She who conceived them has acted shamefully. For she said, I will go after my lovers who give me my bread and my water, my wool and my flax, my oil and my drink. Therefore, I will hedge her up, hedge up her way with thorns and I will build a wall against her so that she cannot find her paths. She shall pursue her lovers, but not overtake them. And she shall seek them, but they shall not find them. Then she shall say, I will go and return to my first husband, for it was better for me then than now. And she did not know that it was I who gave her the grain, the wine and the oil, and who lavished on her silver and gold, which they used for Baal. Therefore, I will take back my grain in its time and my wine in its season, and I will take away my wool and my flax, which were to cover her nakedness. Now I will uncover her lewdness in the sight of her lovers and no one shall rescue her out of my hand. And I will put an end to all her mirth, her feasts, her new moons, her Sabbaths, and all her appointed feasts. And I will lay waste to her vines and her fig trees of which she said, these are my wages, which my lovers have given me. I will make them a forest and, a, and the beasts of the field shall devour them and I will punish her 
for the feast of the Baals, when she burned offerings to them and adorned herself with ring and jewelry and went after her lovers and forgot me, declares the Lord. Now, in this situation, you've got to remember chapter 1. So chapter 1, uh, we have this, uh, the initial part of this lived or enacted prophecy. And so Hosea is told, go and marry a woman of harlotry. And we're not sure if she was active in that process or if she was a temple prostitute or if she was just a regular Israelite following after Jeroboam I, the son of Nebat, continuing in that sin. But what we do know is that she had no affection for the Lord her God, and what we do know is that she would have no affection for Hosea and and the call that he was given to her. And they bore three children, if you remember. One was named Jezreel, which was to indicate that God works in history, but we don't listen. And God is long-suffering and working in history, and he calls to us again and again and again, but we ignore and we ignore and we ignore Then he called the other one, no mercy, the daughter. Because again, for over 170 years, he had offered them mercy and they would receive none. And the last child, the last son was named not my people. Because in all, for all intents and purposes, they had declared that he was not their God. And so therefore they didn't want anything to do with him. They didn't want anything from his hand. But if you remember, that's not where that chapter ended and that's not where the Bible ends. There was this great exposition of the Abrahamic covenant this promise that God would bless his people and not let them drown in a fallen and broken world, that he would not let sin have the final say. So the emphasis in chapter one was essentially the Abrahamic covenant. We come to chapter two, and what we're gonna see emphasized here all throughout the chapter is creation, the covenant that God made with creation, that he declared that he would provide for them, that his image bearers would have every good gift that they would need to carry out the mission that he had given to them. And remember, their mission was to display his glory in this world through a couple of things, being fruitful, multiplying, and having dominion over all things. And how we see that in the great commission of Christ who says, go and baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them all that I've taught you, essentially making them children of God because I have been given dominion and I go with you to the end of the age. Think about how the Holy Spirit was a gift, a seal, a down payment to that end. And so, in this chapter, we will see that God makes it clear that he is the one who provides and it's a promise that he made in Genesis 1 and one that he would keep. Even though there would be a season in which he would have to take it away, and why does he take it away? Because she has attributed it to someone else. And if he takes it away and that someone else that she has attributed it to can't give it back to her, what does that teach her? That her gods are false, that Baal grants nothing, that only the Lord her God. So that that justice, that discipline, that judgment would in fact be redemptive. And so as we look at this, we see Hosea turning uh, via the, the word of the Lord to the children, to the people and saying, listen, We know that the kings and the prophets and the priests have failed you, but you are God's people. You will receive mercy. So we need your help. We're asking you to be ambassadors of reconciliation. We're asking you to participate in the calling forth of repentance. And so he uses this very strong term, plead. He says it twice. Anytime something is said twice, what does that tell us? 
Probably pretty important. And in the Hebrew, this is a strong, strong term, legal type term that deals with the gravity of the situation. It is almost a begging of sorts. Plead, plead with your mother to return. And if you notice, the judgment that is coming is contingent, right? And he says, if she will put these things away from her and recognize that I am the Lord her God, I will not strip her naked. I will not expose her. I will not turn her over to her sin. He says, lest she do that, if she doesn't, I will reduce her all the way down to nothing so that she will recognize that there is nothing gained by her hand, that it is all gained because of my covenant love and grace and mercy. Would that we would all learn that reality, right? Think about the sermon that Matt O'Sullivan preached a few weeks ago uh, when we were looking at grace in the Old Testament and how the, how the people attributed all that they gained in the wilderness to somehow themselves. How in the world do you keep your shoes from wearing out unless you put them in a box away in a shelf somewhere? But if you're wearing them, there is no keeping them from wearing out. Such a simple thing. And we look at that and we say, that is craziness. We're doing it every day. We're taking credit for things every single day that there's no possible way you could take credit for. We are forsaking gratitude every single day for things that there's no reason whatsoever we shouldn't be the most thankful of all people on the planet. There are places where God is at work and doing things that we should be the ones crying out and pointing to them because we know that the world is entirely blind to the glory of the Lord. And yet we remain sometimes all too silent because we're afraid people are going to think we're weird, right? Or we're afraid that we're going to get left holding the bag. If you're anything like me, that's my greatest fear, that I'm going to attribute something to the Lord and then immediately something terrible is going to happen and I'm going to look foolish. As if I don't look foolish every single day. Right? Make my French vanilla latte wrong and see how I take it. Right, so we all the time, all the time, have opportunities to call forth and to speak to the goodness of the Lord our God. And so God is calling for the children to speak to the mother, the, the leaders of Israel, calling them to repent unless he has to take everything from her. And as this progresses, what she does instead is compose a hymn to Baal. Right? We don't necessarily see this as we read it uh, in the section where she says, I, I, will, um, I will go after my lovers who give me my bread and my water, my wool, my flax, my oil, and my drink. In the Hebrew, it's written in such poetic form that it seems hymnic. So her response to her children saying, repent and put this away, is to double down in worship for Baal. That is her response. And so the very things that God alone has given and promised since Genesis 1, the fall didn't take away, by the way, his promise of provision. It did not in any way, shape, or form hamper his ability to love his people. What it hampered was our ability to see that love and our ability to understand the fullness of who he is. And so he is gonna take those things from her. If you're gonna sing of these things to Baal, I will take them away and you call out to him then and see what you gain. Now that's just fair, right? That's just a, a fair thing for the Lord our God to do. In fact, that's great grace to let us continue thinking that something is coming from somewhere other than where it's coming from is actually cruelty. 
Which is why we as ambassadors of reconciliation must be a voice in this very darkened world who all the time is attributing to everything else the gains that they have and their strength and their vigor and their abilities, all the time denying the Lord our God. And we, we ought to be the ones who speak to it. And so while he will be severe, it is a severe mercy. Notice what he also does. Not only does he take those things away from her, he says he's going to hem her in that he's actually going to keep her from being able to go to those that she thinks she loves and that she thinks love her the most. He will use uh, hedges and thorns and all of these things to draw her away from that which is destroying her. Now, any of you who have any experience with sin at all, and there may be one or two of you, you know this is true. You felt this. That there are times when you go hard after something and you can feel God hemming you in or you may not know it's God. Maybe you're not yet, uh, you've not yet been um, enlightened to who it is that's actually hemming you in but you're going hard after something and it's not bringing you the pleasure that it once did and you're not able to get to the place that you really want to go because it would destroy you. I have felt this hemming in and God's hand in this, response, this regard. And am so thankful that he loved me enough not to let me go and find what I was looking for. He was so gracious to never let me find joy or peace in any of the places that I looked that were other than him. That's not to say that they didn't have some joy and didn't bring some measure of pleasure because that's one of the great draws of sin is it does in fact feel good for a season. But God in his mercy doesn't let it feel good forever. And so praise be to God that he hems us in. And the question that we must answer is if you've got some things going on in your life, like you're not really able to get to where it is you wanna go. Maybe it's, maybe it's you just are so longing to get into this certain school. Or maybe you are just longing to be married and have children. Or maybe you have a desire for a position at a job somewhere or a recognition in the church or something. And if God in his sovereignty is not allowing it to come, it is because he loves you and is hemming you in from something that could actually destroy you. One of the things I've learned how to pray is in any situation where there's transition is to say, Lord, you can see around the corners I can't see around. You can see into history what I have no idea, earthly idea what's coming. I seem to think this is a good idea. I seem to want this, but you know better than I. Now, unless you think that makes me somehow holier than you, I say that through gritted teeth and sometimes with words that can't be said in church, right? Because it's, it's, it's anger. It's sometimes it's, I want it and I don't know why you won't give it to me because I am an, just an impetuous child left to my own devices. But I've seen the Lord be good enough and I've seen him not give me certain things that I thought would be the best thing ever happened to me. In fact, let me tell you about one. Um, I, was in, uh, I was in undergraduate, and, uh, and I needed a, a third job. And so I, I, I thought, if I can get this job at UPS on the night shift, unloading trucks, making seven bucks an hour, one dollar goes towards scholarship, 
It's going to change my life. Oh, it did. I don't know if you've ever had to get up at 2 in the morning and drive to Fulton Industrial Parkway and unload boxes all night while someone is screaming at you the entire time that made Pharaoh seem like a kitten. I don't know that seven bucks an hour is all that radical as it turned out. And so um, what it did do, what did change my life is it made me realize I need to get an education. I can't, I can't live like this. I can't do this. In fact, uh, Micah, who's leading uh, music, is working at FedEx right now, is coming to the same epiphany. <laughs> and so y'all pray for him and his, that his back would hold. He's actually transitioning to day shift, which I hope will help to some extent. They're still going to scream more, but it'll help in terms of being home at night. And sleeping. And so God will hem us in. And so what I, want you to, what I want you to begin to realize is when you do hear or feel or sense that God is saying no to something, instead of you looking to the things of the earth, look to the Father and one, give thanks that he said no. And then ask, is there some way in which maybe you have drifted from him? Is there some way in which you, you, your worship has gone lackluster? It's not that he's punishing you for lackluster worship. What he's doing is keeping you from going deeper into brokenness and sin. And praise God that he does that to us. And then he goes on to say that he is going to uncover her and expose her sin. I heard Derek Webb say one time that probably the best thing that could happen to all of us, and you're going to immediately disagree with this, by the way, and I did. But the best thing that could ever happen to all of us is if our sin, if there was like on these screens right now, our sin could be, be displayed, okay? So that at long last, we would know who we really are. And we could just get over trying to hide everything and trying to pretend to be things that we're not and, and just, just let it be because, because the truth of the matter is God sees it all as if it's played. And for some reason, we don't think it's a big deal that he knows. Why would I worry about you knowing my sin when the creator of the universe knows it at levels that you can't even begin to comprehend. And so he's going to expose her, not for the sake of harming her, but for drawing her back home. Numbers 32 says, your sin is going to find you out. I've had this happen as well. One of the darkest days in all of our marriage, my sin found me out. But it also proved to be one of the brightest days in all of my marriage because now, at last, I was honest about what I was really going through. And Susan could then love me in that broken place instead of me having it hid all to myself. And I remember the Lord quoted this verse to me as I was driving home from church. He said, today, today your sin will find you out. And I thought, ah, I'm gonna take a nap. I awoke from that nap to my wife in tears. And she said, I've seen it all. And so it was in being exposed that actually I had the opportunity to be redeemed because that which I was hiding could never heal. It could never get the air it needed. It could never get the light it needed. It could never get the love that it needed because I had it hidden so far. And so here again is a severe mercy. If God is bringing you to a place where he exposes you, listen to me. Don't run from the throne of grace. Run to the throne of grace to receive the mercy and the grace that you need in this time of exposed trouble. And we as the church ought to be the kind of people that you can run to. That we ought to be able to be honest with each other to get the help that we need, right? And so here God is progressively, he's taken away, he's hemmed her in, he's exposed her. 
all through his redemptive justice. Listen to what Jeremiah Burroughs says, and it's called an exposition of the prophecy of Hosea. Jeremiah Burroughs was a, a Puritan, and he says this, for God to make the way of sin difficult to sinners is a most singular mercy. Behold, it is better for the way of sin to be hedged with thorns and to be made difficult to us than to have the smoothest path for its commission. It is one of the greatest mercies of God to his children to lay stumbling blocks and difficulties before them in the way of sin. So has God ever used someone to come and to plead with you to return to him? Has God ever exposed your sin for the purpose of restoring you? And how did you respond to that? Right? God does send people to us sometimes to say, I see something in you that's broken and not right. And again, how do we receive that? Do we receive that from the sovereign God? Or do we push them away because we don't want to hear it right now? And if God has ever exposed you, it's not for cruelty. It's not. It's because he loves you. And any who would judge you doesn't understand who they are. And any who would not offer you grace and mercy doesn't understand who God is. And so we as a church, this is one of the things that my great hope is that we would grow in so beautifully, is that we would not be a place that would be shocked when someone comes in and says, hey, I've made this mistake, or hey, I'm struggling with this that we would not recoil from them in horror as if we are so holy and we cannot be beset with sins such as these, but that we could embrace them and say, you've come to the right place. What do you need from us? How can we walk with you through this? And what would that mean for our city, for our, for our church, for the glory of God? for us to be that kind of place. It's not easy, it cuts two ways. They have to be willing to say something, but we have to evidence, as the question I asked you earlier, who do you actually receive critique from? It's always from someone you trust, if you're gonna receive it at all. So how do we become a place of trust? How do we become a people who can be trusted with the darkest of secrets, with the most broken of things? Not that we would pat them on the back and say, go and be well, but instead we would put our arms around them and say, all right, what do you want to do? Here's what the gospel says we need to do. Help us help you. How do we help you? How do we abide with you? Uh, I got a text message. It's just interesting, all that's been going on. Um, from a friend of mine who uh, is a crack at it. I hadn't heard from him in years. And as I was uh, just reading back over this last night, I got this text message from him, and, uh, and it, was just, it was just a powerful moment because Patrick and I have been through a lot, and, um, and for him to still, still believe that he could text me, and I'm not gonna say, dude, who do you think you are? I ain't heard from you in years. You got audacity texting me at this point. It's not what I did. It was a great joy to me. I wanted to rejoice that my friend knew he could still come even after all the water that's gone under the bridge. And know that the Lord is still at work even in his life. 
As we move from God's redemptive justice, we see that his redemptive justice serves this profound purpose, his covenant love. So let's turn back to the text and look at verses 14 through 23. And just listen to how amazing these verses are in light of what we've just read. So there's all this justice coming. He's gonna take away all that she has and all that she attributes to Baal. He's going to hem her in and keep her from being able to enjoy Baal. And then he's going to strip her naked and expose her so that there is no, no longer any, um, anything hidden. And this is the purpose. Therefore, behold, I will allure her and bring her into the wilderness and speak tenderly to her. And there I will give her vineyards and make the valley of Achor, or trouble, a door of hope. And there she shall answer as in the days of her youth, as at the time when she came out of the land of Egypt. And in that day, declares the Lord, you will call me my husband and no longer Will you call me my Baal? For I will remove the names of the Baals from your mouth and they shall be remembered by name no more. And I will make for them a covenant on that day with the beasts of the fields and the birds of the heavens and the creeping things of the ground. And I will abolish the bow, the sword, and, and, and war from the land. And I will make you lie down in safety and I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you to me in righteousness and in justice, in steadfast love and in mercy. I will betroth you to me in faithfulness and you shall know the Lord. And in that day, I will answer, declares the Lord, I will answer the heavens and they shall answer the earth and the earth shall answer the grain and the wine and the oil and they shall answer Jezreel and I will sow her for myself in the land and I will have mercy on no mercy and I will say to not my people, you are my people. And he shall say, you are my God. So God's redemptive justice is for the purpose of leading the people of God who have, who have gone away from him and chosen lovers far less wild and far less providing. He's going to call them back into that place where he led them on the exodus, the wilderness. Remember, he said that they were to come out of Egypt so that they could dwell with him and worship him in the wilderness. So he's going to call them again to the place where he can dwell with his people. And notice it says that straight away he will provide for her the vineyards, and he will speak tenderly to her. And it says that he will take and change that which was known throughout all of Israel, the, the, the Valley of Achor, which is the Valley of Trouble, which is where um, Achan and his family were judged because of the sin at Ai that cost many their lives. That that, that history, that historical moment that was a black mark that was so difficult for Israel would become a doorway of hope. Do you hear that, Christian? Beloved, that the very places where you historically, and it is known to be awful, and it is known to be a dark place, that, in fact, will become for you a door of hope. I have tasted of that as one who grew up uh, in a very difficult family situation that was riddled with addiction. And in fact, I remember the first time I ever went to the rescue mission just to talk to the rescue mission about, hey, how can our church partner with you? 
the lady asked me my story and I shared it. And she goes, okay, when do you want to preach? And I said, I don't, I didn't, I, I don't. It's not what I'm here for. She said, no, boy, you need to understand why you're here. The Lord sent you here for a different reason than why you came. And so thus began the journey of me going back into the valley of trouble. I don't enjoy talking about my mother's overdose. I don't enjoy talking about my father killing himself. I don't enjoy living with those realities. My grandmother drinking herself to death. My stepfather spending 29 years in prison. I take no pleasure in those scars. I wish I could trade it all and be a homeschool kid or something awesome. But I can't. This is what I am. And the Lord uses that again and again and again. My buddy Patrick texts me because he knows I know the blood in that ditch. He's got someone he can turn to who he knows will not turn him away. And you all have similar circumstances and stories. I can't minister to everybody. I'm not for everybody, right? I'm not gonna be able to speak into certain situations or resonate, but you, you collection of diverse and diverse stories, we, we as a church can minister to lots of things if we are willing to open our eyes and be ambassadors of reconciliation, to use those valleys of trouble to become doorways of hope. And notice the language that he uses. He makes it so clear that this, in fact, is recreation. How he says that, that again, he's going to speak to the beasts of the fields and the creeping things. This is just Genesis 1 again. Him saying, remember what I told you. Remember what hasn't changed. Remember I haven't changed. I am the creator of the universe. And I have loved you from before time began. I created you because I love I want you to be able to enjoy all these things. In fact, he promises to put away war. I was reading this morning, um, there's a three-volume set by Rick Atkinson on, uh, the, on World War II, and I'm in the second volume where they are invading Sicily. And it's interesting, the statement that he makes about war is he said one of the things that they, and they just had a situation where two, um, two higher-ups had executed uh, 30 to 40 Italian prisoners, just executed them outright. They, they were actually had, had, had surrendered and they took them in a field and they just executed them. And people were saying, this is what we're supposed to be fighting against. Both men were court-martialed but never actually did time. It was hidden until uh, a few years ago. And so one of the observations that that Rick Atkinson makes is for all of the romanticism of war, what it actually does is it teaches us how to become the worst possible version of ourselves. That war, in fact, leaves no one unscathed, no one unchanged, and no one not broken. What a profound thing to say about war. And so, so here God is saying, that which drags you into the abyss, I will make no more. No more bows, no more swords, no more war. Peace, peace will reign in your land. This is looking far forward into the future. This is actually, uh, to use a theological term, this is eschatological, meaning it is for the end. This is for the last advent of Christ when all things will be made new. How beautiful is it that that vision has been part of the point of the entire story throughout the whole of the Bible. 
That even as we were traveling east of Eden, we were not traveling toward chaos or nothingness. No, we were traveling toward the last advent when all things would be made new. Everything has meaning and purpose. Even our sin, even God's discipline, even God's judgment. And so what we see here is this glorious vision in which we will be betrothed to the Lord our God. We've been reading that as our benediction for the last few weeks. And we see here that that is something that is an unbreakable covenant and bond. He is committed to it. He is faithful, though we are not. And what's so beautiful about this is all of the characteristics about him that are so important to us, he's actually going to bestow on us so that we can enjoy covenant and fellowship and relationship with him. Remember, the whole point of the story is that God will be glorified and he is most glorified when he is restored to his children. Parents, you know this. You can feel this. You feel that there is a lack of glory in your home when you are at war with your children. When there's something just not right. Children, you feel it when you don't feel reconciled to your parents. You recognize something deep within you says this is not the way it is supposed to be at all. And for those of us who grew up largely fatherless, there is a heavenly father, an Abba father, who I will dwell with someday and I can't wait. One of the beautiful parts about this passage and what's kind of been unfolding in my own heart over the last few weeks is I am growing less cynical, which is interesting given a lot of what I read and a lot of kind of the waters in which I swim. Uh, I am growing less cynical and more hopeful. It's been amazing just this week to even think about how how beautiful it will someday be to have uh, people uh, within our church and who come to our church who can declare that they have been utterly transformed by the power of the gospel and that they are not afraid to share with you their brokenness and that that would in fact draw others who are broken that say, hey, this is a place where you can come and at least have the opportunity for healing, whether you take it or not. What a gift that hope it spreads faster and stronger than the cancer of darkness and sin. And that's what I feel in my own heart and soul as I've been studying Hosea. If you've gotten nothing out of it, your pastor has. And it is tendering me in ways that I don't like. And so, listen to what Derek Kidner says about this portion. He says, righteousness, steadfast love, and the rest are preeminently the very stamp and character of God. And it was the lack of them on Israel's side, not on his, that had wrecked the marriage in the first place. So God's gift is that he will not only be to us all of these things, but will impart them so that his bride will be no longer in fundamental discord with him and at odds with herself. It is another way of saying that he will put his law within his people and write it on their hearts. Speaking of Jeremiah 31, 33. So what are some ways in which God has restored you after disciplining you? What are some ways in which God has just been good to you even though 
you know you just haven't gotten it right? How has God been good to you following what you thought may be the end of you? Or the end of us? Or the end of we? Or the end of whatever? And what do you most look forward to when all things will be made new? One of the things I don't think we do enough, there's a couple things I don't think we do enough. One is I don't think we enough remember how God has been good. Right? We, we, we just, it's just something we're not practiced at. We, we, we don't make it a regular part of who we are. We spend probably more of our time looking at what's wrong instead of celebrating what, what is in fact right. And so that's where the Sabbath comes in. That's why we, have a, we talk about the Lord's Day Sabbath here quite a bit. And that's a great opportunity to do that. If you don't do that at any other day of the week, take time today to do it with your family. The other thing I don't think that we do very well is look forward to what's going to happen in the new heavens and new earth. That we don't spend enough time meditating on just how real and, and beautiful and um, just, just tangible and physical it will be. You do know that of the best meals you've ever had in your life, the best one is still yet to come. You do know that of the greatest landscapes you've ever placed your eyes upon, you have yet to see as you are supposed to see. Its beauty was through a glass at least half darkly, but there, there we will behold in full glory and truth. And so, uh, it would behoove us sometimes to look forward to that coming of the last advent and how all things will be made new so that we both look back and we look forward as it informs how we live in the present. Remember who Jesus came for. Who did he come for? He came for the righteous, correct? Those who had it all together. He was just coming to collect his, 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 his crew. No, he came for the sick because they needed a physician. He came for those who were ascribing things to anyone other than God. He came for those who were writing hymns to anyone other than God. He came for those who would need to be hemmed in because they were gonna go after lovers less wild no matter what was going on. They would lose it all. They couldn't care less. That's who he came for. He came for those who would need to be exposed because they would never be honest in and of their own accord. He came for those who desperately need a new heavens and a new earth. He came for those who desperately needed a savior. So how about us, church? Is that us? Is that, do, we, do we get that, that, that that's who he came for? and that the church itself needs to reflect that reality to a broken and fallen world? Are there people that we are keeping at arm's length with some of the way we do what we do and some of the way we act or some of the way we look upon them? Do you get that if we actually get good at loving messy people, what's this gonna turn into? A much bigger mess. And amen. Which is gonna make my job harder, harder than it'll make yours but I would rather toil in that field day in and day out than keep records that no one's ever gonna read or care about. So how can we, church, become more like Christ and better evidence that redemptive justice and that covenant love of the Lord our God? So what do we learn from Hosea 2? 
that God's discipline serves to call us back to him in repentance. It just does. It's good. Hebrews speaks of the goodness of the discipline of God. If you're his children and you're fallen and you're sinful, guess what? You're gonna have to be disciplined at some point. We all do. Second, that God's will is for his wayward people to be eternally restored to his covenant love and promised blessing. God loves to bless his people and he loves to be with them. Do you know that? So as we close out this morning, um, I am actually gonna take John Calvin's, this is a prayer of John Calvin's actually uh, on the commentary of Hosea about chapter two. I'm gonna read this actually as a prayer. Now you may say, you read prayers? Yeah, Lord's Prayer, heard of it? Okay. All right, we're gonna read this. Um, in fact, I'm gonna invite you, let's read it together. For those of you who have a bulletin and, and, and can see it and read it, um, uh, join me in praying this together. I, I think John Calvin's got some very wise words here. It's just beautiful what he has to say and it would be good for us to do together. Now, we're not gonna do, every, not gonna do a reading every time in Hosea. This is just a one-off type deal uh, that I felt moved to do this morning. So join me in prayer. Grant, almighty God, that as thou often dost justly hide thy face from us so that on every side we see nothing but evidences of thy dreadful judgment, O grant that we with minds raised above the scene of this world may at the same time cherish the hope which thou constantly settest before us so that we may feel fully persuaded that we are loved by thee however severely thou mayest chastise us and may this consolation so support and sustain our souls that patiently enduring whatever chastisements thou mayest lay upon us, we may ever hold fast the reconciliation which thou hast promised us in Christ thy son and all God's people said, amen.